Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. All right. Well, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. Uh, if you're new, um, we usually have Bibles that we offer to you. If you don't have a Bible with you uh, during COVID, we haven't been doing that, so feel free to just Google Matthew 13, and I'm sure you'll find it. Um, that's where we'll be at for the majority of our time this morning. Uh, if you are newer to our church, like I said earlier, welcome. Uh, what we like to do during this time together is just open up the scriptures, uh, read a little bit from them, see what they have to say about life, about reality, and about God, and about us. Uh, and then talk a little bit about what that might look like were we to implement it into our everyday lives. And so that's kind of what we're going to do. We believe with everything in us uh, that even if there are things in this book that are difficult to hear or or difficult to process or, or difficult to wrestle with, that even if that is the case, there is immense help and immense hope to be found in this book. That's really the basis of everything that we do here at City Church. And so that's what we're going to do today. Uh, Lately, we have been working through a book of the Bible known as Matthew, which if you're newer to Jesus or to faith, uh, Matthew is a a book really all about the life and ministry of Jesus. Last week, we kicked off chapter 13 of the book of Matthew, and chapter 13 is made up almost entirely of something called parables, which are sort of these short stories that Jesus would tell from time to time that sort of illustrated different aspects about his mission and his message. And today we're actually going to cover two different parables, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, and then the parable of the net, or some people call it the parable of the fish. And the reason that we're going to cover these two passages, these two parables together, is because they're actually very similar to each other. Some commentators on the book of Matthew actually go so far as to say that they're really the exact same parable, just told with different word pictures in each one. And and while I would say there are certainly some differences between them, they certainly get at very similar themes. And so we're going to take them up together this morning. And just as a fair warning, you just heard one of them read by Selena just a second ago, uh, they're fairly intense. So whatever I need to say, spoiler alert, trigger warning, Whatever the right terminology is, just for you to know, they're pretty intense parables, but we're going to sift through all of that together. So first, let's read the parable of the net, and before we do, I'd love to pray for us. Father, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for the things in the scriptures that we read about. Thank you that they reveal to us who you are and what your desire for humanity is. God, thank you that they reveal to us your character and what you're like. Thank you that we can know you through the words in this book and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So God, we ask in our time together this morning that you would come by your spirit, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear, and you would help us to comprehend and also apply and put into practice the things that we read and the things that we talk about. We ask this in your name, by the power of your spirit, amen, amen. So let's read the parable of the net. That one starts in Matthew 13, starting in verse 47. Once again, 
the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore, and then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but they threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you're new, welcome to City Church. (laughs) Glad you're here this morning. We're just here to encourage you and make you feel good about yourself and occasionally talk about blazing furnaces where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Some of you brought a friend for the first time this morning, and you're like, really? I brought them on Hell Week? That's what I did? Like, <laughs> and I wish I had a better answer for you, but yes, you did bring them on Hell Week. I apologize. Uh, I promise that we'll walk through this together. All things considered, this is a fairly intense ending to a parable, Right? Jesus tells a story about how a net is let down into the lake, catches all kinds of fish. Some of them are good for selling and for eating, and some of them aren't. But they're all in the net. So the fishermen then have to sit down with all of the fish. They have to separate the ones that are good and useful from the ones that are not. And this is how a lot of fishing worked back in the day. It would have been a very familiar experience to many people listening to Jesus tell the story, especially if they worked as fishermen, if that's how they earned their living. Jesus uses that story to say that's how it will be at the end of all things, or what you may have heard of with the term judgment day. That's what it will be like at the end of all things. The angels, so angels were usually envisioned as God's helpers in the scriptures, will one day separate wicked people from righteous people, and the wicked will be thrown into the blazing furnace where there will be, quote, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Simple enough, right? Even if it is hard to process for us. Now, in this parable, we don't get much detail about what happens to the other half of the fish, right? The other half of humanity, the righteous. But in our next parable, we do get that detail. So let's read that one, and then we'll work back through and sift through some of these ideas together. Jump up with me in chapter 13 to verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man or a farmer who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed wheat, weeds excuse me, among the wheat and went away. For reference, the specific weeds that Jesus references here were almost identical in appearance to the wheat. They were almost impossible to tell them apart, especially at the beginning. Then verse 26, when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, okay, then do you want us to pull up the weeds? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. So let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. So already, based on our understanding of the first parable we read about the fish, we may be able to see where this one is going. We can sort of start to see some parallels, most likely. But we don't even have to guess at it, because Jesus, just a few verses later, is going to explain this parable to us in detail. There's this brief interlude where he tells two other parables that we'll look at next week, and then we find an explanation for the parable that we just read. Look with me, starting in verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. 
His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus' name for himself. So the farmer is Jesus. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. At this point, I feel like I need a whiteboard to like draw lines between the different categories. But here's the important part. I need you to look at what happens in verse 40. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that verse, verse 42 that we just read, is almost word for word identical as how the last parable ended. Did you catch that? That sentence is almost exactly the same. But as I mentioned earlier, in this parable, the parable of the weeds and the wheat, we get additional detail about the final destination of the righteous people, not just that of the wicked. Verse 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So in front of us, we have two parables. We have the good fish and the bad fish, and then the wheat and the weeds, And these parables are meant to communicate to us on some level about the ultimate destinations of both the righteous and the wicked. In terms that we are familiar with today, we could say that these two parables are about heaven and hell. But as soon as I use those words, I realize that we've got some work to do together. Because unfortunately for so many people, our understandings of heaven and of hell have been informed way more by ancient mythology and movies and TV and Lil Nas music videos that there's just some work we have to do. That took a little while for some of you. It's fine. It's totally fine. There's just some work that we have to do to understand heaven and hell, not like pop culture presents it to us, but like the scriptures present it to us. And there's actually some unlearning we have to do, even if you don't think that your understanding of those things have been influenced by pop culture, chances are they have, at least in some small way. So what I want us to do is talk a little bit about that this morning. And in the fall, coming up this fall, we're actually going to do a series where in part of it, we're going to sort of reorient how we think about heaven around how the scriptures actually talk about it. Then we're going to talk about heaven. Today, we're going to talk about hell first, because that one's easier. I don't know why we did this one first, to be honest with you, other than these passages, these parables talk more about hell than they do about heaven. So... What I want to do this morning, here's my goal for our time together today, all my cards on the table. I want to try to realign how we think about hell with how the scriptures actually talk about it. I think that's really important because I think maybe some of our objections to it and some of our hesitancies with it actually might have to do with our vision of hell being more formed by pop culture than it has by scripture. So I want to try to reorient how we think about hell to be more aligned with how the scriptures teach about it. And as we do that, I want to try to show you two main things from this. First, I want to try to show you that hell actually answers one of the most pressing, perplexing questions that humanity has about the world we live in. 
And two, I want to try to show you that there is actually immense hope to be found in what the Bible teaches about hell. Does that sound like audacious enough goals for us this morning? Okay, so let's start with that first one. I want us to start by talking about how hell actually answers one of the most pressing questions that you and I have about the world that we occupy. I want us to look back at that first question asked by the servants in the parable of the weeds. So look with me at verse 27 of chapter 13. So when the servants see the weeds in the field, along with the wheat, it says the owner's servants came to him and said, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? Now, you probably don't realize it yet, but you have asked that question before, the question that they ask in the parable. Nearly all of us have, in fact. Obviously not in those exact words. It's a parable after all. There's imagery in play. But you've likely asked that question just the same. Remember, Jesus just told us that the weeds represent people of the evil one. In other words, the weeds in this story are evil people doing evil things in the world. So what these servants are asking, essentially, is why God allows evil in his good world. That's the question they're asking. Why God allows evil in his good world? Or, to put it more like we usually ask it in our day and age, if God is all good and all powerful, why does evil exist? Why is there evil present in a world that God intended to be good? If God plants wheat, why are there weeds? That's the question. Do you see what they're asking in the parable? So this is the question that you and I ask every time a terrorist blows up a building or walks into a school or a church and starts shooting. We ask it when genocide is committed against entire people groups in our world. We ask it when billionaires stack their money higher and higher while people right down the street from them die from starvation. We ask it any time a community leader or a pastor is called embezzling or abusing or harassing. And the list goes on. The question that nearly every single one of us asks, the question that nearly every single one of us has burning in the back of our minds when things like that happen is this same question asked in the parable. If God intends his world to be good, and if God is all-powerful, why then is there evil? If God plants wheat, where did the weeds come from? Why does evil exist? Where did it come from in the beginning. Well, the man in the parable, who we're told represents Jesus, gives us an answer to that question. Look with me at verse 28, first half of verse 28. An enemy did this, he replied. An enemy did this. His answer to why there is still evil present in God's good world is very simple, very straightforward. The answer is that there is an enemy at work. Now, maybe to some of you that seems abundantly obvious. Like that seems like a very obvious answer. But notice what he doesn't say in response. He doesn't say, hey guys, don't worry, God is in control of the field. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? The, the, the weeds are really just wheat in disguise. The evil is really just good in disguise. He doesn't say, don't worry, guys, God is going to use the weeds to accomplish incredible things in your life. All of that may very well be true. There may be a time and a place for saying things like that. That's not the answer that's given here. 
The answer given here for why there is still evil in God's good world, and specifically why there are evil people, is simply that there is an enemy. There is an enemy at work. There's an enemy in the world who is opposed to God's purposes and and who wants to do anything he can to resist it and corrupt it and ruin it and prevent it. He is the reason for the weeds. He is the reason for evil's presence in God's good world. Think about the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. We open up to the first pages of the Bible, and we find that there is an evil talking snake on the very first page. Where, where did he come from? Why is he evil? Why is he trying to ruin everything? The Bible never answers that question. It just says that he's there. There is an enemy who is opposed to God's purposes in the world. He is the reason for evil's presence. So then the follow-up question that we might have in response to that is, okay, well, why isn't God doing something about that then? Like, if, if God cares about what is good and true and righteous in the world, why is he just letting evil coexist with good? Why let the weeds grow alongside the wheat instead of just immediately pulling them up from the beginning? That's what prompts the servants in the story to ask their next question, actually. Second half of verse 28, look with me there. The servants asked him, okay then, do you want us to go and pull them up, the weeds? Do you want us to go and pull them up then? Or put differently, God, if you're not going to go do something about evil, we will. We will go and take out the evil people on our own. And throughout history, people have thought it was their job to do precisely that, have they not? Let's round up the evil people and ship them off somewhere. Let's round up the evil people and destroy them. Let's round up the evil people and torture them or kill them or bare minimum just permanently shun them from society. This is where a lot of wars come from. This is where genocide comes from. This is where persecution comes from, where unjust laws and systems come from. This is where persecution comes from. This is where a lot of cancel culture comes from. They come from us believing that it is somehow our job to round up and extinguish people that we consider evil on God's behalf. It's us believing that we, in our limited understanding and discernment, are the best ones to be judge, jury, and executioner over people. But notice, what's the farmer's response to that question in the parable? Does he say, yeah, guys, go for it. Go wipe them all out for me. That'd be great. Appreciate it. Nope, not at all. He says, verse 29, no, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. In other words, sometimes we're not the best judges when it comes to the states and motives of other people's hearts. One, we don't have the direct window into their hearts that God does. And two, because we are often blinded and biased by the state of our own hearts. Which means if I go about assigning the label evil to whoever I think deserves it in the world and dealing with them harshly according to that label, I'm often going to get it wrong, like a lot of the time. I love the way Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn, I was very nervous I was going to mispronounce that, Alexander Solzhenitsyn puts it, if you've been around our church long, you may have heard this quote before, we've used it a few times. He says this, 
If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And this right here is often the piece of the conversation that we would prefer to leave out of this whole discussion about evil. For an awful lot of us, I think when we ask the question, what should be done about evil, we're always referring to evil out there, aren't we? We're always referring to evil somewhere out there in the world. So terrorists, murderers, abusers, racists, corrupt politicians, almost always when we wonder what God is doing about evil, we're referring to them. We're referring to anyone and everyone but ourselves when we ask that question. But here's the cold hard truth from the scriptures. Every single one of us has participated in evil. Every single one of us. No matter how good you think you are, no matter how much you're convinced that you haven't participated in evil, every single one of us has. Sure, we may not be sex traffickers, but many of us have been driven by lust, which as it turns out is the very engine that fuels sex trafficking across the globe. Sure, we may not be the billionaires stacking our money higher while people go hungry, but we absolutely have purchased an abundance of things that we don't need while people we know go without things that they need. We may not be murderers, but we've harbored resentment and hatred and unforgiveness in our hearts towards people. And what mindset do you think it is that eventually contributes to murder? Is it not resentment and hatred and unforgiveness in people's hearts? Don't you think it's the inability to acknowledge wrong and to forgive other people? So we've all participated in evil without exception. No matter how much we try to convince ourselves that isn't the case, we have participated in evil. And by doing that, we have unleashed evil out into our world, into God's good world. We have caused harm to ourselves by our sin. We have caused harm to other people by our sin. And we have broken God's good design for his world by our sin. And when we realize that, when we understand that about ourselves, we can no longer pretend that this conversation about evil is a theoretical conversation. It's not theoretical, it's personal. When we ask the question, what is God doing about evil? We're actually asking what he's going to do about us and about other people like us. So we're back to our original question, but now with maybe quite a bit more personal investment in the answer, what is God going to do about evil? What's he going to do? The scriptures would teach us that he is doing two primary things about evil. One is that God is on a mission to root out evil from every human heart that will allow him to do it. Through Jesus, God makes a way for the evil in each of our individual hearts to be confronted and then extracted over time. He makes a way for us to be transferred, in the words of Colossians, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son he loves. God deals with evil in the human heart by triumphing over it through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. And so for every person that would accept and receive that reality for them, they can be transferred out of evil's control 
and into Jesus' everlasting kingdom. The first thing that God is doing about evil is that he is extracting it from every human heart that will let him. But the second thing that God does about evil is precisely what these two parables allude to. That one day, he will also extract evil from his world entirely. There will come a day where God will establish his kingdom in its fullness here on earth. And in that kingdom, there will be no evil. There will be no pain. There will be no suffering or death or abuse or violence, which necessarily means that any source of those things must be removed from his good world. So on that day, God will separate the evil from the good, the wicked from the righteous permanently. He will go and uproot the weeds and separate them from the wheat. He will separate out the bad fish from the good. From the language of the parable, he will, quote, weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil, which means everyone who has not allowed God to uproot evil from their heart will themselves be uprooted out of God's good world, and they will experience permanent separation from the God that they rejected. You see, sometimes I think we think of hell within the church, within evangelicalism, I think sometimes we think of hell as some sort of disconnected punishment, right? So we believe if you don't believe the right things or if you do more bad than good in your life, however you've managed to measure that, when you die, God just sends you on a one-way trip to a fiery location with Hitler and Saddam Hussein and all the other South Park characters, right? Like, we believe that that's how it works. It's this disconnected punishment, and it doesn't really make any sense to us. We don't see how point A connects to point B. It just feels like this disconnected punishment for us. That's not really how hell is presented to us in the Scriptures. In the Scriptures, hell is a lot less of a disconnected punishment, and it's a lot more of a logical conclusion. The Scriptures teach us that God made his world good, his intention was that people would walk with him under his good and gracious rule and reign forever. And eventually he will create our world to be precisely what he intended in the beginning, perfectly and forever, which means that if you have decided to live your entire life apart from God's good and gracious rule and reign, God eventually gives you exactly what you want, a life apart from him. And that will also mean a life apart from any of his grace or compassion. Theologians often talk about the idea of God's common grace. I think that's a helpful term, God's common grace. What they mean by that is that all of us currently, whether we follow Jesus or not, we all get to experience certain benefits of God's grace, whether or not we follow him. So things like the goodness and beauty of God's creation, things like the sun coming up in the morning, the rain that renews and replenishes the earth. We get to experience things like relationships with people who love us and care for us and make us smile and make us laugh. There are so many aspects of life that right now God just graciously provides for all of us whether or not we are a part of his kingdom. As Jesus puts it in the Sermon on the Mount, God causes the rain to fall and the sun to rise on the evil and the good. We get to experience these gifts of God's common grace. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but God's common grace can also be seen in how he currently limits and curbs the impact of evil on our world. 
in the society we live in, there are consequences for evil. There are laws that prohibit certain behaviors, that enforce consequences for certain evil behaviors. There is a justice system in our country, for instance. There are even social consequences. If you do something that your community sees as unacceptable, you are often confronted or ostracized for it. Now listen, I'm not saying that any of those systems are perfect, far from it, right? But I am saying that they exist, And even the fact that we sometimes call out for justice when justice isn't done communicates that we have an expectation that that will happen. Communicates that we have an expectation that we live in a just world to some degree. And that's part of God's common grace is that he finds ways to limit and curb evil evil from impacting us as much as it could. But you see, hell is the absence of any of that common grace. Hell is where evil is allowed to run rampant, unchecked, unregulated, permanently. Where there is nothing to limit people's lust, for instance. There's nothing to limit people's greed. There's nothing to limit people's anger or people's injustice, people's abuse. All of that is just allowed to have its way on people with no restraint whatsoever. And hell is where all of God's common grace gifts are also taken away. And the scriptures teach that when you decide to live your life rebelling against God's rule and God's reign, eventually you will experience life outside of his common grace as well. Every good thing that God has generously allowed you to enjoy, despite your opposition to him, will eventually be taken away. And that, most significantly, is what hell is. It is a permanent separation from God and from all that he provides. Hell is when God says, if what you want is to live your life apart from me, okay, I will let you do it. If you want to resist my grace and my compassion, okay, I'll let you do it. But I will also not subject my new creation and my coming kingdom from the evil that comes from your heart. You know, it's interesting to me that we have such a problem with this idea of God's judgment, Because more often than not, when you read through the scriptures, and specifically when you read through the Old Testament, people back then didn't have much of a problem with that reality at all. You know why I think that was? Because they were daily confronted with real, undeniable evil. When you encounter real, undeniable evil on a constant basis, the belief that God will not put up with that forever, but will eventually do something about it, is a beautiful thing to hope in. In fact, I would suspect that if you did a worldwide survey today on people's feelings about hell and judgment, you might find a bit of a pattern. I bet you would find that in places where safety and security and comfort are people's primary life experience, i.e. most of us living in America, we have more of an intellectual problem with hell and judgment. We have a really hard time with it. And then I bet you would find that in places in the world where death and terrorism and persecution and discrimination are regular experiences for them, I would bet you would find those people have way less of a problem with judgment. When you see real undeniable evil on a regular basis and it impacts your life directly on a regular basis, judgment and God's justice comes as very welcome news. Very good news. 
Because it means evil will not triumph forever. It means justice will triumph in the end. And that's not separate from the good news of Jesus. That's part of it. But you might still be asking, after all of that, okay, but why not now? Like, why doesn't God bring that perfect world now? Why is God delaying the day when justice will be done? Like, couldn't he make it all happen right now? Why be so slow about it from our perspective. And believe it or not, you're not the first one to ask that question. Many of the people in the early church were wondering the exact same thing. Here's how Peter, one of the leaders of the early church, responded to that question, that concern from them. We'll put it up on the screen. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So what we see as slowness, according to 2 Peter, is actually God's patience. Yeah, if God wanted to, he could destroy all evil and all doers of evil right this very second. In the blink of an eye, it could be done, for sure. But that would also mean him destroying an awful lot of people that he wants to save. So what he has chosen to do is instead to show patience, to give more and more people time to repent and to rescue more and more people out of the control of the evil one into his good and loving kingdom. He could be immediate, but instead he is patient. He is compassionate. He is pleading. He is waiting. He is calling. He is drawing people to himself. That's who our God is. So ironically, what we often attribute to God's cruelty or God's indifference towards evil is actually his love for his people. His delay is not because he doesn't care, it's because he does. And in the meantime, we are told that God can leverage even the worst of evil for good. Even the worst. Romans chapter 8 tells us that God makes all things work for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Even the worst of evil, God can repurpose. Even the worst suffering, God can redeem. Even the deepest possible pain, God can use. For those who know and follow Jesus, there is no such thing as useless pain. There is no such thing as useless suffering. I once heard it explained like this, and this is going to feel just a bit random for a second. Somebody explained it to me like this, and I thought it was really, really helpful. Has anybody ever heard of a form of martial arts called judo? I told you it would sound random. Have you heard of judo? A few people? Okay, so judo is Japanese for the gentle way. That's what it means, the gentle way. But it's a form of martial arts because essentially what judo does is that it teaches you how to use your opponent's strength and force against them. That's the idea behind judo, at least as I understand it or the guy who explained it to me understood it. If you do judo and this is completely wrong, just talk to me later. Okay, it's an illustration. It's fine. But that's what judo does. It teaches you how to leverage your opponent's strength and force against them to defeat them. Judo has very little to do with kicks and punches and aggressive force for its own sake. It has everything to do with using technique to harness your opponent's energy and use it as a force against them. And the reason I bring, them up, bring that up, as random as it is, is because I think that gives us a really helpful picture of God's relationship with evil. God is not evil. 
God does not wish evil upon people, but he does leverage and harness the power of evil for good. Ultimately, that is what happened at the cross. There on the cross, God used the power of evil to defeat evil. The scriptures tell us that God used the cross, an instrument of evil and torture and death, and he used it to triumph over the power of the evil one once and for all. And one day the scriptures tell us that he will put the final nail in death's coffin. That's the good news. And listen, if he can do that, he can surely use the evil and the pain and the suffering that you have been subjected to for good. If you are known and called according to God's purpose. That doesn't mean that we will always see it or fully understand it or recognize it when it happens. But that does mean that is what God is capable of doing. His kingdom will one day come in its fullness. We won't have to experience evil or evil people or evil actions ever again on that day. But in the meantime, he is able to use even the worst of evil. He's able to use it for good because of his love for you if you call yourself a follower of Jesus. That's our hope. That's what's going to be done about evil. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your power and your might. God, I praise you that you are the one true king over the universe. And that everyone and everything that sets themselves against you and your kingdom will one day be taken care of. God, I thank you that we don't have to wonder if that's going to happen. We don't have to be anxious about whether or not it's going to happen. God, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's where our world is headed. Um, and at the same time, I know that many of us are almost daily confronted with evil. whether it be the people around us or the situations around us, um, or whether it's something that was done to us at one point in the past. And so God, for, for everyone in this room that that applies to, um, what I wanna pray for is that they would experience your grace and mercy and compassion in a completely new way this morning that you would give them hope, that you would give them assurance that your promise can be trusted and that one day you will establish a kingdom where that evil does not exist, where you will wipe away every tear from every eye and you will make all things new as they should have been all along. And so God, my prayer is that we would find solace, we would find hope, we would find encouragement, we'd find endurance in that reality. that we would be renewed in our spirit by who you are and what you are going to do about evil. And God, in the meantime, that we would be overwhelmed and grateful and hopeful 
about what you're doing about evil in our own heart. God, that you are extracting incorrect loves and incorrect priorities and incorrect actions and incorrect thoughts, that you're extracting all of that from our hearts and you're making us more and more a heart that is ruled by your kingdom, by your intention for humanity. And so God, this morning, if there's anything that we're resisting in that regard, if there's anything that we're just holding on to because we think it's better than you, we functionally believe that it provides more than you will, God, I pray that this morning we'd open up our hands and we'd be done with whatever that is. And I won't pretend that that process is easy. A lot of those things are deep-rooted in our hearts. But God, I pray that by your spirit, you would give us the courage and the ability to do it. So God, whatever it is, I pray that you deal with us this morning. You would show us the beauty in your coming kingdom and all that it will be. And God, you would help us to live more and more into that reality now. God, thank you that you are good, you are true, you are just. Thank you that you keep your promises. And God, thank you that we can live our entire lives leaning on who you are and on what you provide. I thank you for the cross that shows us that even the worst of evil can be used for good. And God, thank you that we get to live our lives in a way that is made possible by the cross, by your death and resurrection. God, would you help us by your spirit to do exactly that? And we ask this in your name. Amen.